reflecting on impermanence. And then, you know, that if we do that through the dispassion and, you know, and at least, you know, temporary sometimes this uh, cessation of desire, the uh, implications of, you know, not self and, and the, you know, deep interconnectedness of everything is you know becoming more clear to us and then you know the non-separation and constant flow of all phenomena and constant change somehow you know becomes more and more clear to us on on that's a, like intuitive so this is not like through thinking about it, but it's it's a different kind of intelligence which gets trained you know through the meditation and it needs to start with some intellectual understanding because otherwise nobody would be able to teach us. So we need to understand what is being said and then you know reflecting on it. But then the real teaching is the experience itself which is only possible, you know, if our mind are sufficiently trained so that they can pay attention to this, you know, frequently and long enough so that it, it starts to sink in. And, you know, and we never know that it doesn't have anything to do how many hours we sit on the cushion necessarily because, you know, according to the understanding, uh, Buddhist understanding is we come in, you know, from other lifetimes and with a certain quality of mind, you know, which might have been trained and cultivated over many lifetimes. And then sometimes, you know, somebody hears like a concept and immediately there is a is an insight and, and, and someone else, you know, studies and reads 500 books and still, you know, it does, the fruit hasn't come through. So we never, it's not like a linear process, but it's just in order to have some kind of a map and the map is never the territory itself, but it can help us to orient ourselves. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, so starting with impermanence and, and this, you know, insight into impermanence, the Buddha wasn't the only teacher who was teaching that. You know, even in Greece, Heraclitus was also teaching about impermanence. I think he's on record for having said something like, you know, you never step into the, into the same river twice because the river is just a constant flow. So that wasn't like a new teaching. But then, you know, uh, the, the teaching, the concept of not-self or anatta, that was new at the time of the Buddha. That was the new teaching he brought in and that's considered, you know, like a central concept which is making it possible, you know, that we actually can liberate our minds. If we are training our minds, you know, to let go of clinging to that which cannot be owned or possessed in any way because it's constantly changing. It would be the same as if we would try to nail down a river. It's just not possible, you know. And we can try to dam it and if we dam a river then a lot of pressure is built up. And, you know, we make electricity with that pressure these days. Uh, 
So, and then also, you know, through damming the river, then certain eddies and all of those things, you know, start to happen and that kind of uh, distorts the flow also, distorts clarity. So whenever, you know, we are interfering in the flow through um, trying to nail it down or trying to push it away, we are distorting it. And then what we see is is not the way it really is. And that's like a trauma response would be like that, you know, is is distorting the picture. And and that's neither good nor bad, but it's it's helpful to know that because it um knowing that you know gives us the capacity to um to work with it and slowly but surely through practice letting it go and letting it come back into the natural flow of things. And the word Dhamma means, be, besides many other things, nature. And still today, you know, in the Thai language, for example, the word for natural is Dhammachat. So it's a, it's a very common word used in, in daily language. And language itself, you know, has a, like a huge influence on the way we think on our worldviews, you know, in different cultures have different form of languages, which, you know, one says, if you know the language of a, of a, of a, of a country, you, you know that country very well, you know, if you know what, what they emphasize and what they de-emphasize, tells you a lot about the culture of a country. And one thing is, you know, that most of, of the languages these days have a lot of nouns in them, and some languages have more than others. And nouns, you know, uh, kind of instill in us the assumption that there are unchanging entities, things, you know, which are separate. And in reality, that's not the case, you know. So, for example, this battle is even, you know, it looks to our sense organs, through the eyes, looks like it's an unchanging item, but in reality it isn't which just escapes our sense organs because of the way they are, that we can't really see the decay of it and, and the constant change. But nevertheless, this is what is happening. And because we are speaking and thinking in nouns, and also when we you know, teach little children, we, the first they learn the nouns. That's like the important thing, isn't it? House and mama, papa and all of those things. It starts with that. And then there is already the distortions already starting there. But on the other hand, you know, that's the way how we can communicate as human beings. So it's neither good nor bad, but it's good to know that. And then also, you know, whatever is important for us, as a as a as a culture that we have a lot of different words for and there's a lot of subtleness and a lot of um, detail for example you know languages often languages of indigenous peoples have a lot of words for the different kinds of relationships they have you know the family systems i've been trained as a cultural anthropologist and i remember you know, the most elaborate uh, family systems there are, are have Aborigine people in Australia. They often they have very little um, material things, but they have incredibly um, 
sophisticated um, systems for naming relatives, you know, how many generations down and how many um, uncles and aunts and everything, very, very complex. And this is like a whole science, basically, that is investigated. And they often have also, you know, names for being related to animals and plants. And there is a lot of emphasis on relationship and a lot of capacity for relationship, the messiness, you know, of relationship, which we have relatively little tolerance for because we think it's like we need to kind of get on with it, you know, and buy more things and don't, don't kind of be slowed down by complicated relationships. So then, you know, we lose that capacity to feel related, to feel related to the land, to, to feel related to the animals, to, to feel related to the trees and all of that. And then we can do things, you know, which are very destructive to ourselves as well because we are dependent, so that's very interesting, you know, to kind of reflect on that. Because in the end of the day, you know, the Buddha's teaching is all about relationship. How do I relate to my own experience? That's like what the Buddha's teaching tries to um, show us, you know, that the way how we are relating to our experience is incredibly important because it is... To recognize that is like opening a very different dimension of experience and, and starting to understand that the way how we are experiencing things has a lot to do with the way we are looking at those things. You know, what assumptions we are coming from, what intentions are there, so that our desires, you know, of wanting and not wanting, they color everything. And there, again, it's neither good nor bad, but it's just good to know that, you know. That, that's, that's just like a basic, important information to know. That when I look at something, you know, with a fearful mind, it looks different than when I look at something with an open mind. And... Uh, to come back, you know, to the, the sequence of insight, you know, first, you know, contemplating impermanence and then all, you know, phenomena which are impermanent, they are, because of that impermanence, they are unreliable, they are uncertain. And the word for that in the Pali language is dukkha, and it's often translated as suffering, which sounds a little bit... Um, kind of negative and can, you know, lead to a certain misunderstanding about what the teaching wants us to understand. Because if we look at the etymology of the word dukkha, it consists of two parts. The first part, du, means something like ill-fitting or, you know, not fitting together. And the word ka is the, the axle hole in a wheel, so it means like that the axle fits not into the axle hole. And because of that, you're having a bumpy ride, you know, with that, with that chariot, which has such an axle hole. 
And that's what it means, you know, it's, it's a bumpy ride. So whenever, you know, we are relating to phenomena, it's, it's bumpy because they never really fulfill our expectations. They are just what they are. So that's what, what Dukkha means. Unsatisfactory is the best translation, I think, or unreliable is also good. Suffering is not really good because suffering is not is not inherent to phenomena, but suffering is is the result of clinging. So if you're not clinging to a chariot as not producing a bumpy ride, then there is suffering. But if we are knowing it is a bumpy ride and there is no clinging or defending against that, then there won't be any dukkha. And then, you know, that which is impermanent, that which is constantly changing and unreliable because of that, that can't be taken as me or mine because it simply, you know, doesn't really exist permanently because otherwise it wouldn't be able to disappear. You know, arising out of emptiness and then disappearing back into emptiness. Anything which can do this is not really fully existing because otherwise there would be something left, you know. And that's the investigation, you know, for example, looking at the body and, or looking at a, a chariot, that's one of the suttas. And then, you know, the chariot is taking a part in its many, many different uh, parts, like the wheels and the, the door and the seat and the whatever, like many, many little parts. And then, you know, where is the chariot gone? Because there's only like 500 parts lying on the, on the ground. So where is the chariot now? It hasn't gone anywhere. It never really existed because it was just an assemblage of all of those parts. And the same with our body, you know, the same with everything. If I smash that glass, you know, on the, lying on the floor, 50 pieces, then where has the glass gone? It hasn't gone anywhere really because it never really existed. It was just like a temporary coming together of different conditions. And that, you know, is a, a very useful way of looking at, at everything. Because it comes much closer to reality. And the closer, you know, we are at reality, the less suffering there is, you know. And, you know, suffering is just simply uh, the result of wanting things to be a certain way and then they are not. And on the other hand, you know, um, it makes it very clear the deep entanglement of everything with everything else. And the Venerable Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, spoke to that by coining the term interbeing, which, you know, has become widespreadly used because it's so brilliant. Everything inter is. You know, for example, if we eat an apple, then... You know, we are not only eating the apple. We, where does the apple start? Where does the apple end? You know, there's the, the apple tree and the earth where the tree was growing and the rain and the sunshine and the people who tended the tree and the people who harvested the apples and the people who transported it to the supermarket and then the people put it in the shelf. And where does the apple start? Where does it end? And so it is with everything. 
And when the mind, you know, is encouraged to allow all of that to descend, basically, into the mind, then like, wow, everything kind of opens up and suddenly we live in a different world, you know. We, We allow much more world into our mind. And that can only happen, you know, if if there's a certain healing has happened. Because otherwise the mind is quite contracted and can't allow a lot of world in, you know, it's easily overwhelmed. And then through practice, you know, we are like, you know, putting our toe into the water and, and going in more and more and live in a bigger and bigger world and can allow more and more world into our lives. For that, you know, a certain healing needs to happen first. And and the meditation practice is about, you know, first is a lot about healing and, you know, getting to know our patterns of of thinking and, you know, supporting our identities and supporting our stories. And then we get to know our stories and our identities through the meditation practice And then like after 10, 15 years, we get really bored with the stories because we know that it's always the same stories, you know. And then slowly, slowly, they start to, we start to, you know, develop maybe a certain sense of humor about those stories and they start to kind of open up and and drop away. And it's it's like the consistency of the application of the practice um, makes that possible, that healing, you know. And, and samadhi practice, you know, trying to focus the mind and then the mind wanders off again and bringing it back. That's how that healing happens, you know. And it looks like, oh, it's all going wrong, you know, because I'm constantly thinking. I mean, you might be constantly thinking, but through, if you're paying attention to it, the patterns, you know, start to become clearer. And then, you know, some insights occur, and it doesn't need to be like an intellectual undertaking, but those things are just smoothening out, you know, and the fragmentations of the broken window, you know, starts to kind of um, smooth out and and uh, heal, you know. And sometimes we also need expert support, you know, like therapeutic support, because if things are very intense... But this is the way how it works, you know. Then over time, the window, the, those um, distortions, you know, start to disappear. And then we start to see more and more clearly, you know. And uh, we start to understand more and more, you know, that we are not separate. And then, you know, then the next step would be to start also sensing in that, into that, you know like trying to sense into that truth, you know, that we are deeply entangled with this uh, planet and all of the ancestors, you know, which have gone before us in the evolutionary trajectory here, like four billion years or so. And then that starts to change our identity, you know, and, we, and we, there's a sense of, of deep... Uh, enrichment also which comes, you know, when the mind is capable to sense into that richness of history and of depths, you know, these bodies are like 
very super sophisticated biocomputers, more sophisticated than any iPhone. iPhone is like a stone age tool compared to the body we have. But we haven't yet, you know, really uh, developed the maturity to appreciate it, really. Because we are distracted by wanting to, you know, terraform Mars or do all kinds of things, you know, which are maybe, you know, kind of entertaining for the intellect, but it's not really that helpful, you know, when there are so many other things which need to be taken care of. So, you know, what's important right now is that this, I think, you know, this insight into anatta, not self, or in the later traditions it was called emptiness, you know, meaning empty of a self, meaning, you know, that all phenomena don't exist from their own side, but they are deeply entangled with everything else. So empty means, you know, not existing from one's own side, but being deeply entangled with everything else. For example, my body, you know, is if I really look at it deeply, it turns out it's entangled with the whole universe. And, you know, and then the mind just stops because it can't go there. And that's great because then, you know, the mind opens up and then a different kind of capacity for relationship starts to emerge, you know, and that's more an intuitive knowing, or knowing with the chitta, heart, not knowing with the mind. The mind is good for a lot of things, but not for that kind of knowing. The mind is good, you know, for booking tickets and for um, repairing cars and flying to the moon and those things, you know. But in order to understand the deep entanglement, the mind can only be like a jumping board, you know. But then we need, need to leave the thinking mind behind and turn on a different kind of intelligence which, you know, turns itself on if, if there's the intention for it and if we are capable, you know, to step out of the thinking mind. And... Uh, And, you know, and this, this way of knowing is not just like an emergent new strand of consciousness which, which is coming online right now, but it's, it's something which our societies and our cultures have, you know, underused and we have lost the capacity you know, and some of the indigenous cultures, they have held on to that, you know, through their traditions and their different practices they had, you know. And they have kind of uh, protected that kind of uh, capacity for knowing. And and we can also rekindle it in ourselves, you know. No, no problem, because it's all, it's our... Inheritance, it's all there. You know, we also have indigenous relatives if we go back far enough in our lands. So that's all, it's all there. We just need to be interested enough and understand that it is actually a question of life and death for us to switch on that intelligence again. And, uh, 
and also uh, and how amazing that is you know how how well that fits in with the concept of not self or emptiness but it has to just come you know come down from an individual realization to also see it you know in relationship to everything else so it needs to be like a mere a collective understanding of this which is you know a bit different than it was at the time of when the buddha was was around because there was no the planet wasn't considered to be limited in any way that was like a huge 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 there's the, several suttas you know where the buddha speaks about where he gives some teaching examples and where the, where the planet is considered to be like the biggest thing you know in order to speak about something really big and limitless the planet was used as an example but these days you know we have so many we are 9 billion people almost or 8 i think i don't know quite or not 8 i think yeah so it's different now you know we are no longer living in iron age india we are living now here in the bay area in the third millennium and things have changed so to bring the teaching into the contemporary situation is is important you know and uh, so that you know those what we see in the meditation and what we contemplate that it also you know goes so deep that it really changes our behavior you know as we were saying you know when you're getting up for the meal trying to slow down a little bit trying to really connect with the fact you know that these things which we are eating that they become our bodies to really know that deeply is is much more than an intellectual undertaking because you know if it doesn't change our behavior it does it means we don't really understand yet but you know first it, we need to it starts here you know with information comes into the brain you know and then it's it through contemplation it starts to kind of be integrated and then it becomes knowledge and then you know it starts to influence our behavior and then certain things we can't do anymore you know because there's a, a sense of of pulling back because we 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 deeply know that we harm ourselves and and because we are not separate and you know and this kind of understanding becomes like an intuitive understanding which is becomes part of our being and uh, you know that's something we need to look into and you know basically composting our old world views and composting is a messy affair and it produces a lot of heat i think also you know so who wants to do that you know and and i remember that ajahn chah you know one of the thai forest masters he spoke about he called that earthworm practice you know like an earthworm in the ground doesn't know where he or she is going you know but keep on moving you know keep on going and uh, whatever is in front of the nose just chewing you know working with that 
And earthworms are really important. You know, they, they kind of aerate the soil and, and they make the soil much more fruitful. So earthworms are very humble beings, but they have an important function. And there are so many beings here on this planet, you know, we can't even see with our naked eye. And they have a lot of, they have important function. But, and we have never, you know, met any, some of them and still they're doing their job. So it's just all quite different, you know, than what we usually think. And if we start to open the mind in that way, it, it, it does change us. And uh, you know, if, if we are able, I think, you know, to heal some of these wrong assumptions, you know, these the stories we tell ourselves about what it means you know, to be a human being and, the, and all of the stories, the, the mythologies and, and the stories we tell our children and so on. All of that, if that is adapted and changed and be more in sync with reality, it will help us you know, to update our capacity for imagination. And then a lot can be possible just simply because we, we think so. And I think in not, that is just not to be underestimated the power of imagination that if it's freed up from the past, it opens up a different future. And... Uh, what is very interesting to me is, you know, the, the word humus, there's a word for earth, humus, humility, and human, they all start, you know, with the same letters, the first two letters. So that should tell us a lot, I think. You know, there's a certain intelligence already happening, you know, even in our, our language, you know, which is sometimes, you know, we, we become, I, I'm 65, now, and I've just learned that a few weeks ago, that humus, humility, and human start with the same two letters. I said, wow, amazing. But, but I've never paid attention to, that, to, the, to, to those things, you know. And it seems like we pay attention to a lot of stuff which is like not worth it, you know. And, and a lot of things which are really important and have a lot of impact for a little, a lot of information, you know. We overlook it because we have been, we, we haven't paid attention in that way first. So, so I find that very powerful, that reflection. You, humus, humility, and human. So we, we must have something in common, those three words. I think that's very um, amazing to me. You know, allowing that information to come into the formation of this being. Also the word information I find really powerful word, you know. To, to really integrate it into that formation and then act from it. And, uh, you know, as a way to start is, is really what we, where we can really start is with our intention. And that's one of the eight 
the parts of the Noble Eightfold Path. It's in Pali, it's called Sama Sankapa. And it's, you know, translated as either right intention, right thought, or right resolve. You know, and intention is very, very important on the spiritual path. It's a very subtle, um, just looking how much time I've left. I'm already spoken too long. Oh, it's a very subtle kind of uh, work, you know, to be aware of one's intention and to come back to it again and again. And, you know, sometimes it's also called maybe prayer. You know, to remember every day or, or maybe every sitting, you know, why am I practicing actually? And where do I want to go? Where am I aiming? And that intention, you know, sets everything in in the right direction if we remember it consistently then you know different things start to happen and uh, you know support starts to appear and so i think you know right intention is very very important for for the practice and there was a, a question uh, yesterday in the chat, you know, if, if right action, what is right action? You know, can, can, can we have, you know, right intention, but not right action? And, um, you know, all of those eight parts you know, of the Noble Eightfold Path, they always are integrated with each other. If, for example, right action, is action inside of the Noble Eightfold Path. And, and right intention is a right resolve or a right aspiration inside of the Noble Eightfold Path. And it's, it's uh, you know, thought and, and resolve free from desire, desire in terms of uh, tanha, free from craving, free from ill will and free from cruelty and in in a positive way is you know right thought is thought of renunciation thought of goodwill and thought of compassion so if our intention you know has anything to do with those qualities then we could uh, call that right intention for example you know may i progress on the path to liberation for my own benefit and for the benefit of others. That could be, you know, a right intention we could remember before we sit down. Because that really clearly, you know, sets the direction. It makes it clear in which direction we want to go and then see, you know, what emerges. And, uh, you know, and if we feel concerned about the situation on the planet these days if we you know feel concerned about the poly crisis and all of the feedback you know we receive from nature then we can we can individually all of us you know we can set the intention that we want to be part of the medicine that we want to be part of the immune system you know because we are simply are part of the earth and it's our you know our way of living which make a big havoc at this time you know because we are 
we are interrupting the self-regulation of the planet because of the way how we relate to it. So we all can uh, you know, be making our contribution that this changes, you know. And we can, you know, first by individually cultivating the intention to be part of the medicine and then see, you know, what comes back. Because there is a feedback, you know, which starts to um, come, you know. It's like ever so faint, you know, like listening to music which is not loud enough. First you have to really kind of strain into it a little bit. And then somehow if you continue to have the intention and then really act on what you learn, then it becomes clearer, becomes clearer. And then, you know, doors open up and things happen which show us the way, you know. And, and that, you know, doesn't happen only for individuals, but also, you know, we, we can, it starts then to become a more collective experience if that's what we cultivate, if we put in the um, causes and conditions, you know. So, you know, in the beginning, if we want to cultivate these new capacities, it's, it's uncomfortable because it's just learning a skill, you know, like learning to drive a car in the beginning is super stressful. You, you can only drive, you can't listen to the radio and eat something at the same time and have a chat. And then five years later, you can do everything at the same time, no problem. So all skills, you know, are like we just need to put in the, the time and, and the energy and the effort and then it starts to gain momentum. So it's like, you know, opening up new neural pathways. That's, it's kind of uncomfortable. Letting go of certain addictions, you know, to distraction and all of that stuff. So it's not that it's not possible. It is definitely possible, it's just not easy. Yep. But you know, our life can become very useful and very meaningful and and you know, that's much better than shopping more stuff, really. Because that stuff is, is impermanent. And you can't, when you die, you can't take it with you. But the good qualities, you know, which we are developing, the mind, you know, they are, they are part of the mind stream. So it's a very good investment, really. The best, you know, the safest investment ever. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.